This is the Almost Awakened Podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. How are you doing? <laughs> good. How are you? I'm doing so good. Been a, it's been a great day. Uh, got up early, got some things done. Uh, Got a brand new bowling ball and bowling shoes because my wife and I go bowling quite a bit. And I went and had the holes drilled for it this morning. And we're going to go give it a test try tonight. So new shoes, a new ball. I bowled my high game of 178 a couple of weeks ago. Oh, okay. Good for you. I saw some yeah, really yeah. cool Halloween pictures of you and Amanda. Very we had a, post-Mormon, uh, if I may say. Yeah, yeah. We had a party at our house. Um, there were 30 or so people there. And we had a $75 cash prize for the sexiest costume, uh, $75 cash prize for the best costume. And then we did some other games like count the number of candy corns in a jar mm -hmm. and you got a $40 prize and whatnot. So we did a yeah fun party, bunch of people. Yeah, it was kind of really, really cool. This weekend, I did some guiding again with some plant medicine with some new people, which I really love doing. And then we had a sound bath experience with kind of my post uh, or I guess we call it post-Orthodox because there's many people on the Mormon spectrum. But the group that I have here in Boise, we went and did a sound bath, which was really, really cool. Um, one of the one spiritual thing that I'd never done before. And then we went to a – there's a new bar in uh, Boise that just does non-alcoholic drinks. It does kava, and so we had we went to the kava bar after. So, yeah, I am loving um, just still exploring spirituality and still meeting in community with people, and, yeah, feels really good. Have you ever heard of 2CB? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I became familiar with that about a week ago, and mm. uh, that was that was intense. Um more intense than I was expecting it to be. Hmm. So for the folks out there who are familiar with 2CB, you you kind of at least get a feel for it. They say it's kind of a, a mix between uh, MDMA and LSD. Hmm. And yeah, that's that's probably the right place to put it. <laughs> I'm not uh, I'm not quite as experimental experimental as you are. Yeah. Um, I really like doing it kind of as part of what I do as a spiritual director, mm -hmm. but just really getting to spend a couple hours with someone processing whatever they, you know, we end up processing in the session. So I really enjoy it just kind of as, as an added tool to, to what I do and helping people, uh, you know, reconstruct their spirituality. But today I'm super excited because we're going to go over the bite model, which Someone mentioned even in the comments that uh, it's this term that gets floated around everywhere, um, but I really want to dive in. And I actually, as we were preparing for this episode and getting um, some information for it, I feel like I learned a lot. And it really goes hand in hand with 
the kind of Mormon specific episode that you did with Nuance Ho on, you know, thought stopping cliches. Uh, but we're going to kind of take a step back where we're not just talking about Mormon specific, but just how our brains are really primed for cults. And we all kind of cult to a various degree. And so to understand it, um, it was really, really interesting to go through. So I'm excited to do that today. Yeah, I you know, I've been spending a lot of time over the last decade just looking into other high demand fundamentalist religions. And it's not just in religion that you find the bite model being used. It's in governments and education and just about every field where somebody could be unhealthy manipulating, you'll find people in groups that use this. But um this has been a decade of really diving into this kind of stuff. And I think every person in spirituality slash religion. Uh, and I don't use those terms to mean the same thing, but in those two fields, I think people should be deeply familiar with this model so that they can stay away from unhealthy uh, processes and interactions where they're being manipulated or pressured into things. Yeah. Or even like you said, in, in politics, it shows up even in like kind of exercise cults, you know, where it's like we're a keto CrossFit warrior and every kind of other exercise is terrible for you or whatever. Um yeah, we're just really prone to this. And so it's just really learning about our own brains. And so we can yeah. all we can all resonate to some degree to um, the organizations that we're a part of and kind of where they show up on the bite model. Yeah. So um, this research starts. Oh, I had this fun quote from Creed Bratton first. He says in the office. He's the old guy in the office. He says, I've been in many cults. You have more fun as a follower, but you make more money as a leader. And I thought that was like a great quote to just start us off with the wisdom of Creed Bratton. Um, so this research starts off with this guy named Stephen Hassan. He's still alive. You can listen. Um, he podcasts and he has an organization. Um and so he's still doing this work. And so he's an expert on exit counseling, which is so interesting to me, like how people get out of cults, like fascinating guy. So he's the world's expert on kind of mind control and cults and authoritarian organizations, because when he was 19, he was recruited into a church called the Unification Church, and they worship this guy named uh, Sun Myung Moon. And so we kind of call them Moonies. The Moonies. Um, yeah, the Moonies. And so he lived in this house and he slept um, in this kind of communal house. He slept less than four hours a night. Um, he became like a missionary for it. And these beliefs get super weird. It was like Richard Nixon is like an archangel and, um, you know, there's some Jesus things and there's always some apocalypse things. Anyway, he eventually um, was driving and he's sleep deprived because he's he's the, the sleep thing is all messed up anyway. And he gets in a car accident that requires him to go to the hospital. And so his parents kind of use this as a an opportunity to, um, you know, he's in the hospital, he's away from the community, his family and friends and some counselors kind of gather with him. And he realized, oh, my God, I'm in a cult. And um, so he wanted to understand, like, he was an educated guy, he was 19, he was in college, it's not like he was, he's a stupid guy, like, um, he's the world expert in this by now, like, but he was wrapped into this cult. And so 
he got into trying to understand it because he got sucked into one and wanted to understand like, how did this happen to me? So he wrote books on combating mind control, about helping loved ones leave um, cults and controlling people and beliefs. And then eventually he developed this thing called the bite model about how to rate how culty an organization is. Super interesting story. Yeah. I, again, off track here. I won't spend much time on it, but I did an interview uh, years ago with another religion, the Raelians, and so strange. And the Moonies are kind of, again, strange. And when you're inside of a system, you don't think it's strange. If you're a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or the Raelians, or, you just don't think so. And so as a Mooney, you don't know. But once you get taken away, which is one of Stephen Hassan's tips is to, if you're going to deconstruct this stuff, you have to get the person away from their tribe, that religious system, so that they can begin to see it as an outsider. To me, it's just so fascinating. Yeah, and it is. it will be interesting in the years in the future to see what COVID did to certain organizations mm -hmm. because people got a break from things. Um, we're still today. kind of gathering the data on that because there's some things socially that people missed, and then there's some things that people are like, whoa, I'm actually healthier not doing this thing. So we're still kind of gathering how COVID affected things. But yeah, we'll talk more later about how mm -hmm. like how he recommends people leaving cults. And then just like what we do, because one of the most interesting things that he said was that when you are leaving a cult, your brain is primed to just hop into another cult. Like the wiring is already right there. And so you have to be actually super careful when you're leaving a cult because that's when you're most vulnerable to jump into another. And um, anyway, this is going to be a really fun conversation. Mm. Good stuff. Okay. So the bite model consists of four methods of control that cults use. And again, we're not just talking about the Moonies. We're talking about any kind of organization that really wants to keep a group of people together for a certain purpose, right? So B is for behavior control. I is for information control, T is for thought control, and E is for emotional control. And so if you can exert all four types of these control, a cult can gain power over someone and essentially strip them of whatever free will we have, whatever that is, whatever that percentage of choice that we have, it can essentially strip that away. So by controlling these four areas of someone's life, you can sever their ability to think for themselves. Um, and just to note, yeah. too, I mean, people could go online and they could read tons of lists for each one of these behavior control mechanisms, information control, so on. A an unhealthy system need not have all of these, right? It just needs to have uh, a handful of them even would start to indicate a very unhealthy group. And the more of them, the more effective the group will be at manipulating people and controlling what goes in and what comes out but it, it need not be all these things. Right. And we'll talk later about, you know, there's a degree of influence here, right? So uh, there may be pressure, but, you know, there's a difference in the kind of pressure that, that certain groups use. And so just because someone, um, yeah, just because an organization may have a couple of things, it may not, you know, mean that it's, you know, a capital C cult, right? It's, yeah. it's all kind of on a spectrum here. So for the first one, behavior control, and you can put up the slide here, I think, Bill. Uh, the blue one? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's do So that. behavior control has to do, oh, sorry, the other one. Oh, we'll do influence do later. Okay. 
So behavior control has to do with restricting and controlling your actual physical movements of a human being. So it's essentially telling someone, uh, go here, don't go there. Uh, cults seek to control who their members live with and associate with, hoping to keep people apart. And so um, really it's about we need to keep all these people together and we need to keep, quote unquote, the world, whatever that is, out. And this could even be, you know, we think of religions naturally, but this can even be, um, you know, don't read that stuff about vaccinations, whatever side you're on, because X, Y, Z, right? So they may force you to get some kind of brand or hairstyle or clothing, and this is a form of control. They may control what you eat or ask you to fast or prevent you from sleeping, knowing that a hungry and tired person is easier to manipulate. Um, and many cults have their own ritual behaviors and ways to speak, and this binds members into an in-group and cements outsiders as an out-group. So doing behaviors together can make people feel special. And so this is all about creating the in-group. And so that's going to be by where you go, what you do, how you look, how you dress, the words that you say in the group that aren't understood outside the group. Um, for you and I who are coming from Mormonism, we have probably 50 acronyms in our head that don't apply to anywhere else except for this yeah. specific group, right? Insider that's a language. Baseball. That's mm -hmm. a language that's just for us, right? That yeah. makes it harder to go out into the world because we're not as understood because we have these special words, right? Yeah, there, there is much of that. Like creating a unique language, a uh, vernacular is is crucial to high demand fundamentalist groups. And uh, the things that can fall into this behavior one can be very serious. They could be things like kidnapping, beating, torture, rape, imprisonment, murder. And you hear some of that, for instance, in Scientology, you hear where really high up people uh, by day are doing the work of Scientology. They're smiling, they're, they're interacting. And then at night they're thrown into uh, uh, um, one of these cargo containers and that's where they sleep at night and they don't get access to uh, the comforts of a normal life. And they're essentially imprisoned. And that doesn't make sense to us, but it can be that serious. And then it can also be just subtle things uh, as you're talking about that idea of just changing language a little bit or keeping people so busy that they don't have time to really think outside the box or to use their critical thinking skills. You're, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, like you say, when I'm, when I'm hearing his story, I'm like, Whoa, that's a level of cult I've never experienced where it's actually hard for you to leave the facility. Mm -hmm. Like if you're Amish, that's extremely hard to just jump out into the world, right? You don't even have the language to be able to associate with the world anymore. And so that was like, oh, okay, that's that's a level of cult that I haven't experienced. But then it's also like, can you show up with pink hair and like still participate in the group, you know? Right. That's very other interesting. shaming techniques to keep you from being that. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the next one is really, really important. And this one was interesting to me. So this is information control. So successfully brainwashing people necessitates that they don't have access to information that is contrary to the teachings of the cult. So in a general sense, it means deliberately holding information, especially, um, which was so interesting for me to hear, there's in most cults, there's always a sense of you can have this information, but later on, like not yet, you're not ready for it. And when I heard that, I was like, 
whoa, like that is so interesting that not just in Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or Scientology, all these things, um, there'll be access to information, but only when you get to a certain amount of in-group to be able to handle that information, right? So sometimes it's withholding everything. And sometimes it's like, we're not going to tell you this yet because you're not in enough yet to be able to handle it, right? Yeah. And you'll sense too, again, not all of these high demand groups are within Christianity or Islam or other religions that have a, a text or a manual or a book by which they follow. But generally, most of these groups will use some sort of codification to look back on and go like, hey, this is this is where the rules are. And so, for instance, you'll see in Christian groups that do such things, such as Mormonism, where it sometimes doesn't let you have access to the information and tells you you'll get it later on. There's the idea of pointing back at the scriptures and going milk before meat and pearls before swine. And, and so we have these cliches that in our heads go like, oh, yeah, like, of course, we believe the Bible. And so it's justified when in reality, it's simply there to keep you from having access to all the information. Yeah, so... The interesting thing that also comes out of the information part is that cults encourage other members to spy on each other. So it kind of creates, you've got to have some kind of buddy system to ensure that no one is consuming outside information. And so you see all the time where someone will start talking about something and the rest of the in-group will just shut it down. Like, we don't talk about that. We don't go there. That's not an approved source. That is Satan. That is demons. That is whatever the language they have for that. There's some way that when information does get in for the group, not even the leader, just members of the in-group to shut it down, which right. was so interesting. So destructive cults, compartmentalize information so that no one sees the big picture until they are ready. So for instance, Hassan describes meeting a potential recruitee for the Moonies and asked whether he knew that Moonies bowed to a picture of their leader, their cult leader, Moon. And so the new recruit didn't know that yet. And he found it kind of off-putting. And in the end, he decided he didn't want to continue interacting but um, it'll be interesting that people sometimes on the outside will know more about the inner workings than the missionaries because the missionaries aren't trusted with the big picture yet. They just want the shiny, nice things to get more people in. It's such really a strange thing, right? Like on one hand, the believer is taught to not trust the people who have left. Meanwhile, the people who have left seem to have more context information and uh, understanding of the data than the folks who are in. And, and yet, again, as, as we're talking about, you, you can't trust those folks. They've left. They've Their faith has been uh, challenged and they were too weak and they gave into it. And so we can't listen to those voices. Meanwhile, they are the voices who could probably be having been in both worlds, probably best explain uh, what's going on that the believer is not aware of. Right. And I think it's interesting that in this time period, how easily we can kind of fall into this without knowing. So because of the realities of social media and the algorithms, and if you click something, it'll keep getting more information on that view that you already have. Um, it seems like there is kind of a potential for social media to really drag you down, especially kind of information control. So you look at someone who was that your 
You know sports more than me. Who is that basketball guy who was like a flat earther for a while? Uh, Kyrie Irving. Yes. And it's like you put a normal sane person with enough YouTube videos about flat earth and even you and I like put us on a rabbit hole for a couple years about flat earth and, and however they construct that and explain that on their YouTube videos. And even you and me after a while would be like, maybe there's something to, Oh, I never thought about that before. The you know, like moon you, landing, can, yeah. you can get <laughs> caught. Yeah. On these YouTube rabbit holes. And then it seems like all the news information coincides with that. And then all of a sudden, you're just a normal person who's a flat earther, which is yeah. one of the most absurd things. Like the fact that we have that today is just mind blowing, but it it is so easy to fall into once you start limiting information. And I'll just note here as a side tangent, there are people in every crazy idea that has a following, right? There are people who investigate the information and in in spite of how much information there is that their belief isn't true they still believe it so we shouldn't be surprised that even in the midst of a scientific uh, uh age of verifiable history and, and data that people still believe in flat earths or that we didn't land on the moon or that uh you know elections are fixed or whatever the thing is that people gravitate towards and so just seeing that there are believers in your system who know all the information doesn't exactly mean that your system is still true. Yeah, it just goes back to to this idea that we all cult because our brains are just really wired to once this view is right, you know, we stick to it and then social media will start to support it. And then it seems like everybody who's in our in-group is right and good and everybody. Yeah. And then all that you'll see from the other side are like, whatever the the liberals that say insane things or the conservatives who say insane things. And it's like, Oh, they must all be insane. <laughs> so it's me it, and my in-laws are exposed to two different Facebooks, right? Two different. Oh Instagrams, yeah. Two different Absolutely. Twitters. Even Google, yeah. like you Google something like it's a different set of information that comes up, which becomes yeah. really dangerous. The more we understand how easy it is for our brains mm. to get off on a tangent. Right. Very much. Okay. So the next one is thought control. So this one, I feel like you really covered well uh, with Mormon specific things in the in the other episode that you did with with Nuance Ho. But um, so while behavior and while behavior control and information control are methods of control imposed by the cult itself, thought control is where the members start to internalize the teachings and impose it on themselves. And it's the way this one was the most interesting to me because it's the way that you create the feedback loop so that the cult is never wrong. And it's always true because whenever you get a thought that's like negative or doubting, it's like, I have to sing a hymn to get that away or I have to, you know, whatever the thing is that they do. And so your own brain starts to create a food feedback loop where it becomes impossible for you to have a thought that's outside this cult is right and true and whatever. So cults encourage, though not by name, thought stopping techniques, meaning techniques that shut down the process of questioning. So chanting, speaking in tongues, singing, humming, dancing, praying becomes the substitute for questioning your re 
your own reality. And so it encourages people to never allow negative thoughts into their minds because then Satan is getting in or whatever the word that they have for that is. Um, and so in that way, the cult can really instill a black and white way of thinking and your own brain begins to fall into that. And so cults use their own language. So for the Moonies, it, they used, they would call it the Cain Abel problem. And if a member had a difference opinion, if a member had a difference of opinion with a mentor higher up, they were told it was a Cain Abel problem and that Cain needed to submit instead of trying to oppose. Like in the Bible, he killed Abel instead of submitting to God. And so whenever that came up where someone had a difference of opinion, they would just say, oh, that's a Cain Abel problem boom, it's shut down. It's gone. We don't have to talk about it anymore. And that's the only possible solution to the disagreement. And so common ones are, you know, it will work out in the next life. Just have faith. God is testing you. That one came up a lot when we were watching um, the banner under the banner of heaven. Um, anytime something was like, wow, it seems like this is not really working. It's like, well, God is testing you. Satan and angels for the daybells. It was like zombies, like like they've been taking, they've been taken over, um, for the cult of the left. Like, you know, there is a cult of the politics of the left. It can be controlling what can or cannot be said where it becomes kind of thought control. That's really self-imposed. Um, anyway, you should not criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. hundred percent. That's, that's, that's there. And then it's interesting in the left, when you talk about, you know, canceling people, um, the extreme of that, I think it's a little bit of this, like you thought the wrong thing. And anyway, it's a little bit of, of thought control. And there's still, I've been to atheist gatherings that were just as much virtue signaling as any Republican national convention or any Christian, you know, group or whatever. It's just very natural and easy for humans to fall into virtue signaling to each other that we're, that we're right and that we're safe and that we're in the in group. Yeah. And all roads lead to Rome. So no matter what problems yes. get discovered, there's always a workaround. So just this morning, I did a podcast where I tried to uh, juxtapose kind of Mormonism against Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance. And in the Jehovah Witness faith, they predicted that Jesus would come back in 1914, and he didn't. So then it got changed to everybody who was alive at that moment in 1914. Um, well, first, they started off by saying World War One started so that must have been the indicating big event. So Jesus is coming back, but this is the start of it. He just hasn't shown up yet. Then some time goes by and they still don't get any further with anything happening with Jesus coming back. So then they change it to everybody who's alive in 1914. That generation shall not fully pass away until Jesus come back. Well, now we're at a point where all of those people are dead. So now the Jehovah Witnesses have a, a dry erase board and the guy's writing up there and he's got all these workarounds for if you add these years and you subtract that, then you know now we still know that Jesus is coming back, but now it's going to happen in 1975. And that didn't happen. And you, you find in every religion where people are on the outside trying to point out uh, irregularities and contradictions, that the insiders always have a, 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 a path back to faith. Um, and so you'll see that happen everywhere, whether it's Mormon apologetics, whether it's the Jehovah Witnesses I'm telling you about, whether it's explanations in Scientology. Um, but that's also another game that gets played. Yeah. And it, it gets played everywhere. So we're not just picking on religion here. Mm -mm. Um, 
But for me personally, the one that personally annoys me the most is um, I can, I don't have to think about that or deal with that. I'll learn that in the next life or I'll work it out in the next life or whatever. Because I just, I just don't, you know, people will say that atheists are very, um, you know, prideful and snooty and, you know, they can be. But to me, like, there's been thousands of versions of heaven and 10,000 gods that have no longer being worshipped. And so just, it's just, it bothers me. It's a trigger. <laughs> when Whenever someone says, you know, that's a next life problem, oof, I got to really check in with myself because I'm going to be fuming on the inside because it's just, it's so sad that, you know, we have this one life and we have this, the, you have this doubt or this problem come up and it's just this easy out, easy out. I don't even have to think about my gay son because that'll be worked out in the next life. Well, that's this gay son's entire life that we know of, you know, that one, that one bothers me the most. And then one other thing in this thought section, I see if I can articulate this right, but in, you're taught to see your group as having the full bucket of information and that everyone on the outside is deceived or mistaken. And so anytime somebody comes to you with additional information that your tribe didn't share with you, you're taught to think of that information as those people must be mistaken. That can't be true. That's, you know, critical material that, that, that somebody's trying to deceive me, deceive me with. And you're really taught to not trust information when it comes to you from an outside source, because if there are going to be answers, surely it will come from the, the inner authorities or the outer authorities inside your tribe instead. I do think this is one of the reasons that Gen Z has such a disconnect with religious leaders in church is because if they're getting better moral education outside of those people, then how could this possibly be the best place for my soul or God or yeah, whatever? Brene Brown has no business being smarter than my church leader. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so when for the kids who are very, you know, we've talked about this for very empathetic, very open to different perspectives, very aware of um, any kind of prejudice. And if they're getting that from the church and the outside has a better moral messages from, you know, your Brene Brown or whatever, then it's really hard for the Generation Z to buy into this idea that this group has the ultimate truth, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the last one is emotional control. So in a similar way, this one, this one I've worked with a lot, uh, in a similar way to how t cults teach that certain thoughts are bad, they also teach their members that they must do away with certain emotions. And I have never met someone, I have never had a, especially female, but I'll say even both, um, client who didn't have to deconstruct that like anger is bad, you know, something like that, right? right? So emotion. Yes. Emotions like restlessness, doubt, homesickness, anger um, can cause cult members to dissent. And so cults do everything in their power to eliminate those emotions in their members. So the primary way that, the, that cults control people's emotions is through fear. So if you fear the outside world, why would you ever think of leaving? If you fear that you will never have happiness or salvation, um, why would you ever doubt? Uh, another way that 
cults manipulate people's emotions is by by convincing them that all of their problems are their fault and never the fault of the leader or never the fault of the group. And so it's always like we were unworthy. Like if the prophecy doesn't come true, all like nine times out of 10, no matter what the cult is, if, if the aliens didn't come or Jesus didn't come, it's that like we were not worthy. And so we need to go back to the leader to fix our wretched ways. And so it just keeps going. And so, um, this is this is just the fear, the fear um, digging in here, and it was a huge part of my deconstruction. There was a part of my deconstruction where I, I couldn't take another step forward, and I didn't I didn't know why. I just knew that I was stuck, and then through like some deep meditation, it was this deep fear that if I take another step forward, I'm gonna lose my eternal family, like that fear. Like I'm an adult and I've, you know, I was reading all this stuff and I had deconstructed years ago, but that fear was still holding me back because it was in my bones, right? It was a fear that was given to me as a child that if you take another step, your family is gone. And I had to like, I had to almost give that inner child a different message that it's going to be okay until I could take a step forward because that fear was so, so, so deep. Yeah. And, and you'll find in this emotional section, there are certain systems and Mormonism is the easy one to point to, but which manipulate emotions, right? So emotion is the way that you know that our system is true. And then you've got uh, groups like Scientology who use pseudoscience, who take this e-meter, which has some real science to it. And then they overreach on what it can do and what it can't do. And so somebody in uh, experiencing um, this device has an emotional connection to like, oh, this worked. I got to talk about this and I saw the meter move and I felt better afterwards. And so people connect whether they're happy or sad, whether they are content or distraught with whether the system is um, spiritually meeting their needs or not. And conflating those can be dangerous. Yeah. And Fear is really driving this. So even and and really just playing on your emotions. So if you're kind of in the cult of right wing politics, it will be immigrants are coming and they're bringing down America and they're going to take your jobs and our American values. And there's a lot of fear messaging there. Right. That really brings that together uh, for like something like LuLaRoe. Um, if you saw the documentary on on LuLaRoe and deconstructing all that it was like these these big parties where people would tell their stories and how they became um you know financially independent through LuLaRoe and it's very very emotional like wow this mom is like so amazing and look at what they did and then if you ever like weren't selling or weren't weren't doing well it was never like the company's problem. It was always like, you're not working hard enough. You're not hustling enough. You're not da, 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 da. And like people would get caught into it and then, you know, lose their life savings and all of that. And it's just very, um, it, it just really is digging into your emotions, especially the emotion of fear. However, that shows up. Anytime things don't go right to like you said, you get, you get blamed. The system isn't the problem. The, the system works. If it's not working for you, look in the mirror. Right. Right. Yeah. And anytime, yeah, the prophecy's wrong. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's, we're not worthy. And so, and I think the other thing is, especially with female clients, I, I spend a lot of time deconstructing good girl, right? Because 
these emotions are good and these emotions are bad and you smile and um, yeah. And to, to make space for emotions that are quote unquote bad and the messages that they have for you is a, a really big part of wholeness that I think everyone in a cult has to deconstruct because if those emotions are bad, um, you're never going to appreciate, you're never going to really be whole until you deconstruct that because your emotions mm. have been manipulated. Mm, very good. Okay. So types of cults. So there's religious cults. This is, um, the type that most people associate with cults. And this one, here's this one to 10 on the most common religious cult doctrinal beliefs. Okay. One, the doctrine, the doctrine is reality. Everything is an, is an illusion, but we have the story of what is reality, right? Real, number two, reality is black and white. It is somehow good versus evil, and we're good, right? Number three, there'll be some kind of elitist mentality. So there will be special things for the in-in group, what, whoever that is. Hmm. Um, special rituals, special blessings, special knowledge, special information, special money, <laughs> special sex with more women, whatever the special thing is, you have an elitist in in-group. Uh, you pointed this out, by the way, when you said Scientology earlier, it, the, the bottom 60% of Scientologists have no clue what Scientology really is, right? Because until they get uh, so far into their coursework, until they have dedicated so much time to learning things, they only know kind of the almost the barely insider Scientology. Mormonism does the same thing. If you haven't been to the temple or you haven't gotten the second anointing, uh, Jehovah Witnesses have the same thing. Like there's this higher hierarchy and it's beyond just leadership, but it's the best of the best, the people who got, who were extra special and yes. they got extra things. Yes, there's special. Everybody's everybody in the in group is special, but there's always a special special, and the yeah. people who are not special but special don't even know that. So again, yeah. like most members don't know. I don't know if that's still true, but at least before the internet, most members had had no idea that there was such thing as a second anointing. Right? You're not right. ready for that information. We don't, we don't talk about it. Shh. Right? Yeah, it's, it's secret. Yeah, it's secret. It's sacred, not secret. Um, number four, group will over individual will. Number five, strict obedience, modeling the leader. Number six, happiness comes through good performance. Ooh, that's really interesting. Mm. Number seven, manipulation through fear and guilt. Number eight, emotional highs and emotional lows, um, which is really interesting. So you'll have these like EFY, whatever, really emotional high moments. And then if you're really tested, it also means that God, that you're special with God, right? So like if you're having a high and like I am one with God up here with all these people, like super, super spiritual high, um, that means that you're on the right path. But if you also train wreck, it means that you're special because God is testing you this much. And like either way, it's like you are special <laughs> yeah. no matter where Again, you are. All roads lead to Rome. Yeah. Uh, number nine, this one was interesting changes in time orientation. So there's some way that the group is, um, organizing time that may be different than the outside world. So this may be like seven seals, or this may be like, uh, apocalypse kind of stuff. Um, but any way that you can say, you know, this is the outside world, but this is the true kind of time orientation of what's going on. You know, the earth These are the is, last days, even if, you know, the earth is 6,000 years old, whatever it is, 
we have right. a different way to see time or even in, or it can be like circular, you know, circular time, because if it's reincarnation, then where are you in the cycle of reincarnation? So it's, it's a change in time orientation. And then 10, the message is that there's no way out and that there's nothing better outside of the group. Yeah. So that would be kind of your your bread and butter religious cult. And a lot of that depends on, you know, you can have someone who is Mormon or, or Jehovah's Witness, uh, maybe less so Jehovah's Witness, because it's a little bit more obvious in something like public schools because of the holiday thing. But anyway, you can have um, different experiences. So I know people who were Mormon in a place where there weren't very many Mormons and it was just kind of nuanced and um, it was easy to leave because most people weren't Mormon. Um, and so there's a big difference between being Mormon in the center of Utah and being a Mormon where there's really no Mormons where you are like that. That'll be a big difference in kind of the level of where it stands on the bite model, not because the religion has changed, but because the actual social structure of the religion has changed. If you are in the middle of Utah and you're going to lose your job, if people find out that you've had a faith crisis, that's a very different level of um, where this stands on the bite model than someone who is a convert and their family's not real, you know, family's not in it and that kind of thing. Mm, interesting. Okay. So political cults, these are like fringe groups focused on a political ideology Aryan nation um, can get into this. And then it's really focused, especially on information control um, and everybody else being stupid. Uh, psychotherapy and educational cults. So these groups tend to recruit through self-help or empowerment seminars, which cost thousands of dollars. And they ensure that people have kind of these emotional breakthroughs or peak experiences. So this would be like the Bikram yoga guy that ended up to be kind of really culty. And he was, you know, having sex with the young, hot yogis. Um, Nixium, which was really, it's a cult, but it's like focusing on improving your mental health and relationship with your, with its members and moving them to complete their goals. It's very self-help, but it's definitely, you know, acting like a cult. Um, and then even commercial cults. So these cults focus on making money and look like multi-level marketing schemes and demand that their members recruit more people endlessly in order to make money. Hmm. And then, like Amway. yeah, all of that MLMs, LuLaRoe, I would put into that at its, at its height. Um, and so you have to look at all these organizations and see where it falls on the degree of influence. So if you could bring up that other, their picture. So you kind of have to rate the degree of influence. So for example, um, for individuals, you know, it'll have high, it'll say false self um, is going to be on the destructive end of the, of the continuum. Authentic self is on the other side. So when I think about my uh, post-Orthodoxy group in Boise, if I showed up next week and said, I believe that Mary is God and I had an experience or I'm now practicing this religion, I would be okay to do so. People would have some questions, but I would be totally okay to show up if I had a really big change in my spiritual beliefs and I could still show up there because I, I, I have a space to have an authentic self there. Um, but, you know, and then it'll go like for leaders, uh, you know, or is there 
Is there some secrets? Is it deceptive? Is it trustworthy? Is it accountable? So in the same thing in the, in the group that I'm in, if I showed up and I said, I started to do culty things like we're going to pay this much money and you've got to come every week and let's start wearing this armband. Um, there would be pushback. I would be held accountable for some of those things. And so you can kind of look at the groups that you're associated with, whether that be fitness groups or work groups or education groups or your policy or your politics and kind of see where it stands on the continuum. Love it. Okay. So I think I want to talk about what makes a cult leader because this was super, super interesting. So cult leaders, when we had, you did a great episode on anxious attachment and, um, or on attachment styles. And one of the things that Hassan, cause he's trying to understand cults from all points of view. And he found that cult leaders really ranked high in anxious attachment especially if around the age of about between one and a half and two years old, if you don't have a secure attachment and you really have an anxious attachment, there's some wiring that happens that makes it so I want to go the rest of my life thinking, am I special enough? Am I special? And so even in like Chad Daybell, I listen to like all the podcasts on the Daybells because I'm super down that rabbit hole. But in his journal in college, he had this moment of like, no one knows that I'm here and I'm not special. And it's like a little glimpse into his brain of like, when you have an anxious attachment, you're really seeking, how can I be special? And it may drive this really narcissistic culty behavior. And so even for something like Donald Trump, regardless of whether you think his politics are good for the country or bad, we're going to stay out of that. But there definitely seems to be some signs of narcissism having to be the smartest, having to say that you're the smartest, having to say that you're the best, right? And so um, it's really interesting that in talking about cults, we're bringing in that conversation that we had about anxious attachment, that that may be really what's driving that cult leader behavior. And then he said that there's some studies in Europe because we're trying to understand narcissism and what we can do about it. And he said the most promising studies where they took narcissists, which is hard to find anyway, because um, it's really hard for narcissists to admit that they are. Um, and they took them under hypnosis and they had a, them imagine a perfect father and a perfect mother during key memories. And it kind of gave their brains what it needed so that it would stop seeking. Uh, it would, it would essentially stop seeking needing to be special because it's kind of like re-remembering these memories and kind of imagining a perfect father and mother. And that was the most helpful for getting someone who's narcissist, who's really prone to be a leader of a cult to be able to not seek having to be special so much just because they're rewiring the memories, uh, early memories of mom and dad, which I found super interesting. Yeah. I think there takes again, uh, in any of these entities to whether it's political, whether it's religious, but I'll stick with religious for a moment. It, it, there's a certain arrogance needed to come in and go and by an arrogance, I mean, narcissism, there's a certain arrogance needed to come in and go, the whole world is wrong. They've all been interpreting the Bible incorrectly. I have the right answer. Like suddenly I know I've got the, 
the information that that actually is true and holds up and works and then to impose on others that like this is the way this is the way you you can come or go but this is it there is a certain a narcissism that i think has to to be there for someone to impose that their idea is the idea right so that guy is needing to feel special because he missed out on that at some point maybe is the theory and then yeah. the person who really wants that cult leader really is needing, I need some order and security. I need someone to tell me how to make sense of life. And this person seems really sure that he's got the answer. And I, you know, you just want to give yourself to it because it's so much easier than having to try to make sense of the world, which is really hard. It's really hard yeah. to be a human and know, you know, the right way to live your life and all of that. And so when someone comes and says, I have the answer, that's really, you know, so both, both people in that, whether it's the cult group or the cult leader is getting something out of that arrangement, something that they feel like they deeply need. Okay. So let's talk about how to get out, how to get out, how to get other people out and how to get out healthily and, uh, change your brain so that it's not so wired for the next cult. I think you and I both know someone who like hopped out of Mormonism and hopped really fast into something else that was just as high demand. So I, I know quite a few who went, you know, Mormonism is not Christian and then went, but I found the correct, whatever church of Christ and full fully into fundamentalist Christian without skipping a beat. It's like the brain wiring was all already there. We just kind of switched to a new thing. So and it gives you and me pause because we're like, how, how did you not take the same critical thinking skills from this system and go into the next one and go like, Oh, like now that I've deconstructed that, obviously this has got its same kind of problems. Like, yes, it might be softer or more mild, but it's the same thing just set a different way and you and I can't figure it out, but like you say, it becomes very natural for others to very easily slip right into the next thing. Unless you're like rewrite, like rewriting things and shifting things and doing all of that work, your brain is just primed for the next cult to just come in and save you. And I also see this even with, with atheism. I've seen people jump from Mormonism into kind of a culty form of atheism where everything that Sam Harris says is doctrine or everything that Richard Dawkins says is doctrine and you know, everybody else is stupid. And it's like, you just became a missionary for just kind of a new cult over here yeah. or even the cult of the left. You know, I've seen that move before. I mean, we're really just wired for it unless we can do some of this work of um, looking at the structure of why we're doing this. What are my fears that are driving this behavior? What are, what are the, yeah. What's it kind makes of sense, underneath. Right? Mm -hmm. Like we're in a, you're in a tribe and your survival depends on you working with these people and you need a leader and you need to collaborate and everybody has to, has to feel like they're on the same page and moving forward and whatever it takes for this tribe to survive over the last thousands and thousands of years, it seems very natural that our brains would have us compromise truth or reality in order to be part of the team uh, and to believe that the team is on the right track. Yeah. So to get 
someone else out. Let's do that one first. So he recommends first you get on neutral ground. So we're on the same team, right? Because if you come in as the demon Satan of the out group, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you could hold the sun, you know, it'll it just be proof that you're a member of Satan's cult. So you have to somehow get on neutral ground that, hey, I, I love you. I'm here with you. I'm trying to figure out how to be human just as you. We're on the same team. We're, you know, let's try to figure out if this is good for you or if this is not. And really putting the burden of proof on them. So it's not you're sending all the articles that does nothing. Usually um, the burden of proof is on them to prove that it's that it's something good for them and then to focus on behaviors. And so what he noticed is that people help themselves out. So in the 60s, they used to have, um, you know, when they had some some really interesting cults and sex cults and all the things and people would try to get their loved ones out. Um, they they used to do these deprogramming, kind of like an intervention. So they'd take the person, like kidnap the person and try to do an intervention. And he said that he really doesn't recommend that because it's just going to be too, there's going to be too much information to say that these people are, whatever the narrative is, out, Satan, trying to tempt me. And so he said, what you have to do is get on neutral ground so that people help themselves out. And the strongest thing, um, that can you're trying to put more on their shelf. And he said the strongest thing to put on their shelf is testimonials from people who are out and are healthy. So if you're out and you're thriving, that is the strongest thing that you can drop on someone else's shelf, which is so interesting because I've known people who change their minds about uh, homosexuality, for example, just by knowing someone who was happy in a homosexual relationship, like that was a big thing to put on someone's shelf. And so testimonials from people who understand what it feels, you know, who were in the group, know the language, know the feelings and are out and can say, I'm healthy. I'm happy. My family's fine. We, you know, we're not all heroin addicts now. That seems to be the heaviest thing you can do to put on someone's shelf. Yeah. And as we, you know, when I was at Thrive in Salt Lake City, whatever it was, two years ago, the one of the uh, women from the Nexium cult spoke about how you had to present yourself as happy and how anyone who left had to be presented as having not real, not real happiness. And you and I come from Mormonism and there's a lot of storylines about that not being real happiness once you leave. Like those folks are going off and and then your your non-member neighbor across the street, they can't be really happy. There's this need to paint the insiders as having the blessings and the outsiders as missing out. And when that story starts to feel contradictory, that's when a person is, like you say, open to changing their mind. It's why it's so important for unhealthy groups to control the messaging. Yeah. Super interesting. Um, and it, it really helps me kind of, it reminds me to get on neutral ground as far as shared humanity before I can get anywhere with someone who I feel like yeah. is like, okay, like you're really into this. You're showing some maybe culty behavior with this or that. Um, is that if we can get on neutral ground, 
and it's similar to the uh, interview that we had with uh, Bart Campolo. We asked him, you know, what do, what do we do about this? What do we do? He's deconstructed Christianity and he feels like every time he drives by a Christian church and he knows that children are being taught about heaven and hell and things like that, it, it pains him. And so we asked him, you know, what do you, what do we do about this? And he said, you know what, if I wanted to be a missionary and change everybody to humanism, I would just live a good life. And that was his message too, was that just living a good life out here, outside of Christianity for him as a humanist, um, for him was personally the healthiest way to go about life and also seemed to change people's mind the most because it didn't look like hellfire rained upon them. Although I do think it's slightly annoying that sometimes the in-group will be like waiting for the disaster to happen. And then they'll say like, oh, see, you know? There it is. Oh, that, that's so painful. That's so painful for the person who is out, right? Because they're just waiting for something bad to happen in your life. Like they want it to, it's like they want it to happen bad in your life. And then I've also met with people who are out. And then when something does go bad, it's that thought that, you know, we're so brainwashed that the thought comes back of like that bad thing happened probably because I'm not paying tithing anymore. That bad thing happened probably because, and it's like, those thoughts are very, like if you are raised in it, those thoughts are going to still be in there that you'll have to say, no, that's, that's messaging from this and all humans experience train wrecks in their life from time to time. It's all part of being human. Yeah. yeah. I've okay. got, I've got friends who still wonder if they're going to make it to, you know, Mormon heaven or if they're going to, it, it, again, I've got a friend who, when bad things happen, does exactly what you said, which is he feels like, Oh man, maybe it is true. And I'm, I'm just, you know, so I'm being punished by God. And I, 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 I hear that. I, I struggle with that kind of thinking. Um, but when you are just fresh out of it and you haven't built a new identity yet, you should expect those kinds of thoughts to be prevalent. Yeah. Okay. So to know if you're under mind control. So this is like the self checklist for am I off the rails here? The first thing is take a time out, remove yourself from the society, remove yourself from the gym club, whatever it is. You study the bite model and other mind control models and the brain from a neutral space. You seek out testimonials from former members, their critiques, their stories, and then go back to your entry point and say to yourself, if you knew what you know now, would you join again? So that is his like checklist. So what would happen to Scientology or Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses if every person took a year of time out, studied the bite model, <laughs> studied your brain from this neutral space? You can go back to it. You have the choice, right? This is a neutral space. And then you seek out testimonials of former members who talk about their experience, their critiques, their stories. Then you go back to the moment where you decided or you're a child or whatever. Would you now join if you knew all that you know now? How many people would go back? Um, you and I both, I think, realized that a lot of people, if they went through that process, would step away completely. But it is insane sometimes how the backfire effect works. And some folks are prone to not only believe still 
but when they are overwhelmed with evidence, they believe even stronger. Um, when the Jehovah's Witnesses predicted that Christ would come in 1914 and he didn't, a small a segment of those folks were disappointed and left. But a large chunk uh, believed even stronger and de rededicated themselves even deeper into the faith. And I think while what you just pointed out is our best hope uh, at getting somebody out of a high-demand fundamentalist group, um, we should all recognize that it's not foolproof. It, it, it doesn't work 100% of the time. Yeah, and and not because those people are dumb or bad. <laughs> it's that the, the brain, there's not enough on the shelf. You know, if, if it's really, really working for you, for example, we know, you know, a lot of people really missed a lot of the social things or the ritual or the structure of, of whatever their high demand thing was during COVID. Um, if you really miss that and don't have a ton on your shelf, like that system is really works for you. It gives you the order that you feel like you don't have in your life. Otherwise, um, you know, it may be a decision to go back. Hopefully it would be at least a decision to go back and you're choosing it a little bit more aware than what usually happens, which is either some kind of sneaky missionary shiny attend for this guy, for Hassan, it was like these cute young girls who were like overly flirting with him, right? Just thought he was the most amazing guy. And um, he looks back and he says, I really just wanted a girlfriend. And these girls just, they were so happy and they were so pretty and they gave me so much attention. And so at least we can, you know, the people who would go back hopefully are choosing on a little bit more even ground than, than kind of more the slick missionary technique or being raised and indoctrinated into it, right? Okay, so what can we do if you are recovering from a high demand, somewhat culty something? Hassan recommends, this is really interesting, Hassan recommends going back to times when you gave your lotus of control to an authority and reenacting it in your mind. So essentially rewriting the past. And what it does for your brain is that it kind of undoes the priming for the next cult or the opposite where you're so triggered that you can't join any organization of humans under any circumstances because your triggers are just you know, it's both sides of the pendulum. Either you're so, so triggered or you're um, primed for the next cult. And so he says uh, for your personal work to kind of undo that and get to a nice space where you're able to uh, join in community with other humans, but also remain kind of a healthy dose of skepticism and your own inner authority. The way to do that is go back to a time when you remember you had a doubt, you had a negative thought, you had some kind of lotus of control that you gave to an outside authority and reenacted in your mind, what would you have said? What would you have done in that circumstance? Because what the brain does is that it works really hard to justify behavior and cost. So when you feel dissonance and don't say anything and you stay, your brain is going to work really hard to justify that move, right? Brains just, you just want to justify what you're doing. Um, so that, you know, you can just stay focused and do something. So anytime you felt that little bit of dissonance and you gave it to a bishop or an authority or a parent or whatever it was, and you quieted your own inner voice, um, your brain tried to justify why you did that and tried to make that okay. 
And so we have to kind of undo that by going back into the memory and asking yourself, what should I have said? What should I have done in that scenario? So do you yeah. have, do you, do you have anything that stands out for you personally of like a time you, where you wish you could go back and say something? Um, I'm trying to think. Too. I, I don't know that I do. I, I feel like I was, I kind of did speak up. I think it's what made it. So I was always feeling pretty healthy until the very end in my system, when it was starting to be really traumatic to me to stay. I, th I felt really good about staying because I felt like I was raising my hand and speaking out when things didn't add up or I, I was in positions of authority where I could be the one who assigns the talks that somebody else gave or the lessons and I, I could, I, I kind of was in a position of privilege where I could always speak up. Um, but what I, I will say this though, just as you're pointing to going into your head and going through that practice and that it actually does do something uh, to rewire you. That may sound uh, silly maybe to some people that like, I can't just think about a past event and rethink how I would have done it. And that's going to help me get, you know, get beyond it. But the reality is like, for instance, when we have trauma, we go to sleep at night and we have dreams at night to process and regulate things that are going through our mind. It certainly is within the realm of our brains to rethink about uh, experiences, think about how we would handle them differently and essentially begin to start to rewire those connections. Yeah, the one that stands out for me, if I could go back, and this shows the level of kind of my own brainwashing, was um, I remember I remember having conversations with either bishops or stake presidents or whatever about garments, and never and never really noticing that it was totally inappropriate for a man to be talking to a man about, yeah, when I'm on my period, I don't, I don't wear them or I exercise a lot because this is my job. And so I don't wear them. And I'm explaining, you know, like how I'm wearing my underwear. To a and stranger, really. To, right? a, to a straight, to an older, <laughs> to an older man of power, very, very, yeah. you know, in my twenties. And uh, what's interesting is at the very beginning, I had no, like there was no inner voice that said this is inappropriate because from the time I was little, you know, dad is the authority. You're meeting with your bishop. Uh, the men have this kind of special access to God. A man's baptizing me. And so by the time it's time for that question of how do you wear your underwear, I had no inner voice saying that it was inappropriate. Right. And then eventually later on, I started to get a little bit of like, I just don't really feel comfortable, right? And just wanting to get the question over as soon as possible. And so if I were like, the, so something that stands out for me as far as finding my inner voice and saying something different, it would be to go back in those scenarios and tell those, tell those men, I don't feel comfortable talking to a man about my underwear. Mm. And like... I did like I didn't. I didn't. And I'm like an adult human and I'm not and I'm not that dumb. <laughs> but it just didn't even occur to me. It didn't even occur to me that it was inappropriate until until quite later on in my deconstruction. But it, there were many times in my 20s where it was just um just totally normal that he would be asking me how to wear my underwear and it's so interesting. So yeah, that would be one where like I would 
I've thought about I've thought about going back and maybe doing some visualizations of going back into that room and what would I say and how would I say it and maybe I should do do some of those. I think it's it's similar to like inner child work. It's like going back to your inner child and saying what you needed to hear, but then it's also the part of being an inner child where you're going back to say what you should have said. Like what should what should you have said uh, when you were eight, when you were twelve? if you were really listening to your inner voice. And so I think going back and doing both is a huge part of healing in general, but also a really big part of healing from a high, de- all, all the brain wiring as part of being a, in a high demand religion so that you don't just jump into the next cult, politics of the left, new atheists, whatever it is. Um, our brains just really like being in cults. It makes it a lot easier when someone else is making the the choices. And so going back and doing that work means hopefully that you'll be able to stay in that place where you're not so triggered that you can't be with humans, but that, but also that you're not jumping into the next thing. So yeah. super I, interesting. I first, I first came into contact with Stephen Hassan and the bite model well, I was really deeply as a believer in my faith system. And I kind of, you you hear these words, brainwashing or programming, and it sounds so sci-fi that I was like, ah, that's, that's ridiculous. It's like somebody took me in a room and put a machine on your head and, you know, did something to, to somehow fill you with, uh, that you were hypnotized into following along essentially. And so when you were saying like, oh, I, you know, I'm smart and I, I'm not a stupid person. And the reality is that if you set that kind of sci-fi view aside, when, when you're in your system, if you're born into your system specifically, but even as a convert, you, the messaging is overwhelming. You are constantly being taught what your identity is, is interwoven with that, that group that your happiness relies on that group's process, that that your ability to get back to Heavenly Father or to live with your family again or to be successful in life is connected to how you are productive within that group. And so when you think of like little kids singing songs, for instance, in Mormonism, right? Follow the prophet, follow... Like the programming is that you're getting the constant messaging that imposes on you that you see the world through a very limited selective lens. And then you shape your entire identity and world around that. And then it's no wonder that nothing outside of that makes any sense to you. So anyway, I don't, I just don't think it's about someone being stupid uh, so much as being uh, raised to see the world in a very small limited way that you don't have the skill set to challenge that even if you are at that best until sometimes later in life. Yeah. And that's, that's really the point here is that it, it really doesn't matter how bright you are or um, even I, I had, you know, times of, of skepticism. I've, I've always been a questioner. Right. So, so even including all of that, I think this goes back to where we started, which is, um, it, it doesn't matter what what outside information you're getting or how smart you are or even how skeptical you are. These things strip away your free will. And so I can definitely feel that when I look back, when I look back and, and say like all of my emotions were feeding into the system and all of my culture was feeding into it 
and all of my thoughts were feeding into it and being aware of how do I get Satan out of my mind, which is really just creepy when you think about it. And then, you know, oh, and then, um, and then the doctrine, I mean, how many people are still in some kind of church because they fear losing their family, you know, that, that was a really, really deep fear in me. That was in my bones, and I had to let that go. And so when you get all the fears and the behaviors and the thoughts, and you get all of these things going, it's stripping your free will, and it truly doesn't matter how smart you are or how loved you are or how it does, or how strong the information is on the other side, whether we're talking about Mormonism or flat earthers. It doesn't matter because your brain is participating now into this system. And so the only thing that we can do is meet people in our shared humanity, try to get on the same team and show that there's life outside of what you're seeing. And that's the, really the best that we can do for ourselves, you know, for ourselves and for other people, because our brains just are really primed to do this. Um, our brains really like being in cults. <laughs> yeah, they do. Cause it's just, it's one system that everything's feeding into and it just feels like, okay, I know what's right and what's wrong. I know what to do. Yeah. It gives you, it give, in, a, in a world that is full of chaos, yes. it gives you certainty. It gives you a feeling of safety and security. Uh, it gives you confidence that you're doing the right thing that your life has purpose in a world that wants you deconstruct it all how do you figure out what purpose your life even has, right? Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. It answers all, it, it may not be real, but it gives you all of the mythical answers that allow you to be okay. Yeah. And, and, and you get to be special. Yeah. <laughs> you get to be really special, but yeah. as we're, you and I are trying to model, you know, there's, there's life on, there's life on the outside. And sometimes the best thing that we can do, especially when we have family members and both family members are trying to send articles back and forth is to kind of get out of that and just um, try, try to live a good, happy life is really what he says, kind of the best evidence that there's life outside, yeah, totally. which is what we're trying to do out here. Spirituality outside these kinds of systems. Yeah. And that's all that I have for today. Cool. All right. Um, anything else? No, thank you for, we had lots of good comments. Um, it's really interesting to see people say, you know, things like, yeah, for a long time, if bad ha things happened to me, I would think that, that I had, you know, gone off course. And so it, I feel very, I feel in a very shared humanity place where I don't feel shame for being the one who didn't have a red flag at all that an older man asked me about my underwear. And I can just say that and like share humanity that the people who are listening to this podcast may have experienced things like that too. And that, and that it's okay. And this is our, this is just our shared human experience. And here are some tools on how we can make sense of why we do these things. But so I feel, I feel very safe and in my shared humanity uh, when we talk about things like that. So that feels really yeah. good. I think another thing that's helpful just as kind of a concluding remark would be if you go and just go on YouTube and look up uh um, you know, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses history in five minutes or less, or uh, Seventh-day Adventist, or Heaven's Gate, like go just spend a few minutes reading four or five other unhealthy uh, groups that use this bite model uh, that have heavy influence on what people do and how they behave and uh, what kind of emotions they feel. 
and I think once you start to see kind of the forest from the trees by looking at other groups, you can start to kind of make sense of your own experience because yeah. it's outside of that insider language, right? It's outside of yeah. your lens, but you're going like, oh, like they did it too. And it was, and we can, yeah, we can remove the, the shame from it. I mean, I, lead, I meet a lot of men who will feel shame that they went on a mission. I'll feel, I'll meet a lot of women who feel shame that like, how could I just be okay with this polygamy thing? And like, we don't need to do that shame game at all. Like when you see the pressure that was on you and your brain participating in this, of course you were okay with it. You know, we all, we all were, we all, we all can get trapped um, in this kind of thing with the way that our brains work. And so I think we can just remove the shame of that um, because we just, we don't need to be ashamed for what we chose when our free will was so limited. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Amen. That's it. Okay. I'll, I'll end the show here. Have a great day, everybody. Folks, if you like what you're listening to, I think Britt is putting on some great conversations. Check out almostawaken.org. Click the donate button. Send us a few bucks. We would really appreciate it. Um, we really hope to do this for a long time to come. Otherwise, folks, for those who support the podcast, thank you so much. And Brittany Hartley, as always, I think you are doing great stuff. So thank you. Such a pleasure, Bill. Okay. Take it easy. Bye. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit no-nonsense-spirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.